and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I remember reading in history books at school that Andrew Jackson fought against the Bank of the United States just as vigorously as he fought the Battle of New Orleans. But as I began my more in-depth look at American history as an adult, I realized just how little I understood about several cornerstones of the Jackson-era finance and banking system. My initial readings into the subject proved unhelpful, as I would often end the read feeling as lost as I had been coming in, and still have the same questions in mind. What was Jackson's beef with the Bank of the United States about anyway? Why was the specie circular blamed for causing the Panic of 1837? Was the divorce scheme in the Van Buren administration the same thing as the independent treasury system? And why were Democrats so against it when the idea was coming from their president? Finally, I read James C. Curtis's Fox at Bay, Martin Van Buren and the Presidency, 1837-1841. Besides being a well-done biography of Van Buren, it also made the Jackson finance system click in my brain. I can only hope to do as good of a job as Curtis as we discuss this complicated subject on this episode. To begin to talk about Jacksonian finances, we have to back up the story a bit and go back to the beginnings of the government under the U.S. Constitution. When George Washington assumed the presidency in 1789, the nation's finances were in a mess. Rather than the system we have today, in order to fight the revolution, individual states had to take out loans and issue currency as the Confederation government had limited resources. The national government did take out loans and issue currency, but without any powers to tax, the paper money issued, called the Continental, became, quote, not worth a Continental, as the saying went. This massive debt and inability to pay back foreign and domestic financial institutions, as well as citizens who had supported the state and national governments, drove the overall economy down. Washington's new government had to restructure our debt and figure out how to get the economic engine running again. Thus was born the Bank of the United States. Alexander Hamilton, besides inspiring a Broadway musical, developed a financial scheme based off of the structure of the Bank of England, whereby the government would bring into existence its own national bank in which the government would deposit its funds gained from taxes and tariffs. This bank would also be open to the public for both deposits and loans. In addition, this bank would circulate its own notes, which were rather like our modern currency, but not issued directly by the government. As you can imagine, not everyone was a fan of Hamilton's banking scheme. The arguments ranged from it being unconstitutional, as nothing in the Constitution explicitly said that the government had the authority to establish a bank, to fears that Hamilton and his supporters would use the National Bank's powers to dominate the nation and establish either Washington or himself as a monarch, with even Jefferson himself insinuating that cooperating with the National Bank scheme would be, quote, an act of treason. These fears ultimately proved unfounded, and the bank, after briefly being allowed to lapse, had its charter renewed during the Madison administration in order to get the nation's finances again back in order following the War of 1812. However, as the bank started to near recharter time again, it found itself facing its most formidable enemy, the hero of New Orleans, Andrew Jackson himself. Jackson's opposition to the bank was bordering on the point of paranoia. He saw the bank as a, quote, hydra-headed monster and its supporters as, quote, worshippers of the golden calf. His opposition to the bank, and indeed to all banks, was a constant in Jackson's life. 
and only increased after the Panic of 1819 was attributed to the bank's efforts to initiate a tight national monetary policy in order to stabilize what had been a fluctuating market since the first national bank's end. Nicholas Biddle, president of the Bank of the United States, related a conversation with Jackson in which he stated that, quote, Ever since I read the history of the South Sea Bubble, I have been afraid of banks. In his personal history, in the early 1800s, Jackson had suffered financial losses in a business which he had invested in with friends that might explain his personal aversion to debt and banknotes. Jackson's personality was one which equated his personal views as being synonymous with the well-being of the nation. If Jackson deemed something good for the nation, then it was. And if Jackson was opposed to something, then it was detrimental to the nation. The bank was square in his sights as he assumed the presidency. Nearly as much as Jackson, Henry Clay can be assigned his fair share of blame for the bank's national charter not being renewed. Clay was again a candidate for president in 1832, and he and the bank's president, Nicholas Biddle, thought Clay's chances for election would be increased if he forced the bank issue. Thus, though there were still a few years left on the bank's charter, bills were introduced in Congress in January 1832 for reauthorizing the Bank of the United States. For months, the debate raged in Congress until the bill was finally passed and sent to Jackson in July with Jackson then promptly vetoing the bill on the 10th, as anticipated by Biddle. Clay supporters used the issue in the campaign to no avail, as Jackson was re-elected in November by an overwhelming margin, 219 electoral votes to Clay's 49, and with nearly 215,000 more popular votes than Clay. Jackson took this as his mandate to deal a killing blow to the bank. As mentioned earlier, the Bank of the United States was the depository for federal funds. At least, it was before Jackson. Beginning in March 1833, Jackson began to consult with his cabinet about what to do about the bank, with Attorney General Roger Taney advocating a plan to remove the federal deposits and instead deposit them in state banks. One aspect of Jacksonian financial policy was that, while they felt the federal government did not have the authority to create a bank, as it was not an explicit power outlined in the Constitution, by the Tenth Amendment, the states were authorized to charter their own banks. Jacksonians were less wary of state banks, as they allowed for a decentralized banking system, and their power was much less than that of a consolidated federal bank. Thus, they felt that by distributing the federal government funds amongst various state banks, they would be distributing and decentralizing the power that the federal funds brought to influence the nation's economic system, as well as potentially benefiting certain localities. The only problem with this plan is that Jackson's Secretary of the Treasury refused to remove the deposits and sent Jackson a memorandum on May 20th expressing his concerns that such a move would endanger the national economy. Thus, Jackson kicked him upstairs to the position of Secretary of State and appointed a new Secretary of the Treasury. However, this one refused to carry out Jackson's orders as well. This didn't change General Jackson's plans, though. Not one bit. He had Amos Kendall draw up plans and figure out which state banks to deposit the funds in, and by September, he was ready to strike. Jackson fired his Secretary of the Treasury on September 23rd and replaced him with Roger Taney, who then began removing the federal deposits from the Bank of the United States on October 1st. 
The bank continued on after this and received a charter from the state of Pennsylvania in order to keep running. But after this, it would never regain the same power that it once had. Jackson wouldn't stop there, though. Though he had killed the federal bank, state banks were still rather powerful, mainly through their ability to issue notes that were not as standardized in terms of value as our modern currency. The banks would issue their notes as being redeemable for a set value of specie, or hard currency, with gold being the standard. However, banks did not necessarily accept another bank's notes on an equal value, as some banks were seen as being a safer bet than others. As is the case nowadays, though on paper, a bank may have X amount of funds on the books, but if they had to redeem all of the funds deposited in their accounts, they may not immediately be able to do so, as they only have a percentage of that in an actual vault. The rest of the money was legally theirs, but had been lent out to individuals and businesses. Unlike the modern day, at that time there was no federal oversight of banking practices, nor any federal guarantees of deposits, and it was not unheard of for banks to go under and leave their depositors in a lurch. The depositors could sue, but there was no guarantee that they would get their money back. One might ask, under these circumstances, why would anyone trust the banks? But a well-run bank could lead to financial benefit for those who invested and deposited funds in them. It could be a game of chance, though, and it was very much a depositor-beware situation. As holders of the paper note were sometimes forced to accept less than full value for their notes if they were in desperate need of funds, a problem particularly prevalent in the West, which had little hard specie in circulation, Jackson decided that the solution was to eliminate the middleman and instead promote the use of specie. Besides taxes and tariffs, the other way that the federal government brought in funds was through the sale of public lands. At this point, the federal government still had a large amount of land available to sell in the West, and land speculation was seen as another means of becoming wealthy. It was something that Washington and other founders had engaged in with minimal success, and indeed, most of the time, the land would be sold and resold for larger values until it got too expensive and the owner holding the hot potato at the end either had to hold on to it or sell it for a lesser value, the whole time with the land not being developed in any way. Washington circles were beginning to discuss how to make land more readily available to settlers rather than speculators. Jackson's solution was to issue the Specie Circular in 1836. In the simplest terms, the Specie Circular was an executive order requiring that all payment for government-owned land be made in gold and or silver. If you're saying to yourself that this would deter all but the wealthiest speculators and settlers, then you're right. In one fell swoop, Jackson put a monkey wrench in the speculation business, which was a major sector of the U.S. economy, which was a major sector of the U.S. economy in the 1830s. It would be like if the modern president said that all human custodians had to be replaced by robots. The consequences were far-reaching and started picking up after Jackson packed up and made his way back to the Hermitage. Though there were other factors at play as well, it was quite probable that the specie circular was a cause, or at least exacerbated, the panic of 1837. Alright, pulse check. Everyone still awake? I know this financial stuff can get a bit dense, but the main things you need to know at this point are that the National Bank is pretty much gone, the nation's finances are scattered across the nation, the federal government's demanding gold and silver for land purchases, and now we're getting to the worst economic crash in the nation's history at that point. 
The reason that the Panic of 1837 can't be, as it was claimed by some at the time, as being directly caused by the species circular is that it wasn't just the U.S. that was affected. Indeed, some of the problems started in Britain. Basically, investors in England were speculating in the U.S. financial markets. As you can imagine, in a time before even the telegraph, much less telephones, transatlantic business communication was very slow going. So if one wanted to do business across the ocean, one would designate someone to carry out the business of one's company. This agent would have as much or as little authority as the company gave them. But in most instances, they had a pretty free hand. That became a problem. The entire system was built on a notion of confidence rather than solid data. So when the American government started changing the rules of the game, it was inevitable that financiers in Britain would start to grow anxious and lose confidence. With this loss of confidence, the Bank of England began to exert its pressure to corral British investors, leading those investors to start calling in their debts at the same time that, unbeknownst to them, their investments were helping to prop up the American economy. The panic became a panic, partially due to the slow and sometimes complete lack of communication. As noted by Jessica Wepler in her dissertation, 1837, Anatomy of a Panic, quote, America's decentralized financial institutions responded to the crisis nationally by default. Individual bank suspensions occurred throughout the country to protect personal property and local markets. Further, the federal government had little power to do anything to address the problem. Federal funds had been scattered in various banks, some of which were inaccessible as the banks had stopped issuing specie to anyone, even Uncle Sam. On paper, as of the first of the year, 1838, the federal government had $36 million, but in fact could only get access to a million dollars to use to keep the government operating. As the government had contracted out the holdings of the federal deposits, rather than retaining their previous system of more direct control, their hands were tied in what they could do, and now they were as helpless as individual investors and depositors. As currency was controlled by the various banks that were now facing the potential of failure, the crisis escalated to a currency shortage and inflation, which then led to unemployment and wages declining on average from 30 to 50 percent for those lucky enough to find employment. A brief recovery took place in 1838 when banks resumed paying out in specie, but then a second phase of crisis came about, both from states finding themselves unable to pay for new and previously incurred debts, as well as a sharp drop in the price of cotton. As noted by Lepler, there is little of the solid data that we would turn to in the modern era to be able to fully understand the extent to which Americans suffered during this time. Whether it's considered one long crisis or a series of separate panics, the perilous time in American economic history that began in 1837 didn't abate until 1843, and there would be plenty more twists and turns in the story as Van Buren and his administration attempted to address the problem with what was called the independent treasury system. However, that will have to wait. The next episode is our listener questions episode. If you haven't already, please get your questions in as soon as possible. In two weeks' time, we'll discuss the independent treasury system as well as Martin Van Ruin, or I mean Buren, in general. Until then... Please feel free to send me any questions, comments, or suggestions at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, I did want to announce that the Harrison Podcast Facebook page was launched this week, so go check it out at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast. 
as always, the blog is at whhpodcast.blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com, and the podcast can be found on iTunes and Stitcher. I greatly appreciate the positive reviews received thus far and welcome others so that we can move up in the list and have some more listeners join us on our exploration of this pivotal time in American history. Thank you so much for listening.